0: UX Podcast Episode 181 You're listening to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. We are your hosts, Pat
1: Axbom. And James Royal
0: Lawson with listeners in 173 countries from Austria to Guatemala.
1: Joining us today is Richard Banfield. Richard is the CEO and co-founder of Fresh Tilled Soil, author of three books, and he's working on his fourth. He's also holding a workshop at UXLX this May, titled Product Design Strategy.
0: And in this show, Richard shares insights on the topics of product strategy and vision, the sharing of language and culture within a team, the importance of a psychological safe space, Product team challenges, distributed teams, and the value of making mistakes.
1: Now, I'm going to give you a heads up as well that um, Richard was sat in a co-working office space. Um, So there's a a little bit of background noise, um, but I think it adds a little bit of ambience to it.
0: Product design strategy uh, is the name of your workshop. Uh, and, and you've written a book called Design Sprint, you've written a book called Design Leadership, one called Product Leadership. Uh, so why is leadership missing from the, from the title of your workshop?
2: <laughs> uh, you'll have to ask Bruno. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've been talking a lot about product leadership recently in, to, in conferences and at summits. And I think we just wanted to be a little bit more, uh, I know the word is, strategy is in it, but we actually wanted to be a little bit more practical. Mm -hmm. about what we wanted to talk about at UXLX because the audience there tends to be uh, those individuals that are practitioners, they are actually doing the work, they're not just sitting at the strategy level. So Bruno and I had a conversation about it and we decided that let's think about which of these leadership elements applies at the practical level and how can we communicate that to this audience.
1: So so how do you um, define um, product strategy?
2: It's, uh, the product strategy itself is a product of product vision. So um, I'm going to say something slightly controversial here, and that is I don't really believe that a company needs a clear vision. They just need a clear uh, mission, in other words, a, a reason to exist, but they don't need a vision. Um, and the difference between a vision and a, and a mission is that a vision must be something you can literally hallucinate. I mean, you need to be able to see it. Um, even if it's not something that's real, you need to be able to imagine that that's possible. Um, and then from that comes the strategy. And the strategy basically is a fancy way of saying, this is how we're going to behave in order for that vision to come to pass. In other words, we're going to do these things in our actions, in our words, and our thoughts, and those things will ultimately manifest that vision.
1: Right, so it's, it's more of a cult- cultural mindset.
2: And I think that's necessary. I think we've kind of forgotten how to bring the philosophical nature of vision back into the business. We've got pretty good at strategizing, (laughs) strategery. We've got really good at this um, over-analysis of planning, but we've, we've forgotten how to visualize the future. And that is a fundamentally human quality that we should be taking advantage of. You know, if JFK stands up in front of a bunch of people in 1962 and says, Mm. "Um, I've got this detailed plan about how we're going to go to the moon, and here it is, point by point, everybody's falling asleep. But if he stands up there and says, we're going to do something that's incredibly difficult, it's hard, we're doing it because it's hard, we're actually motivated because it's difficult, um, and we're going to send a man to the moon. That's incredibly inspiring. You you actually want to get involved in that, even if you don't know... Exactly what your role might be. You, you're, ex- you're suddenly excited about it. You're like, "Yeah, I want to go to the moon. I want to be part of that team." Um, so I think we've we've got really good at planning, but we've also f- in the process forgotten how to be good visualizers and good manifestors of those visions.
0: Wow, I, I love that. Actually, it's uh, it's akin to storytelling. But so so, what would be some techniques to actually become better at visualizing and better at describing what you want, where you want to be in the future?
2: I, I think the first thing for for organizations and companies to do is to allow a space for that to happen. So first of all, you've got to create the psychological safety for people to talk about the vision and not feel like they're going to get criticized because they're talking about a a bigger, more fantastic future. Um, Companies like Tesla and SpaceX, under the leadership of somebody like Elon Musk, obviously are doing a good job at this. Hey, we're going to go to Mars or we're going to transform the way energy is used. Um... Those kinds of big, fantastic visions need a safe place to live. So you have to create a company culture that allows for that conversation to happen without people feeling like they're going to get uh, criticized for that or even condescended. Like, oh, well, you know, how are we going to do that? That's the, you know, we, bec- we become a bunch of analysts. Every question that anybody mm-hmm. or any time somebody says something, we say, well, how are you going to do that? Um, mm-hmm. and, and that curtails people's creativity. But if you're hanging around with a bunch of kids, you never say that to them. You know, a kid says, oh, I want to be an astronaut when I grow up. You're like, absolutely, great. And you pat them on the back and you, you get excited about mm-hmm. it. Um, but as adults, we like to, you know, beat the crap out of people's ideas. And as soon as they think anything creative, anything that's, that's visionary, we, we overanalyze that thing today. So the first thing you have to do is create a safe space for that to happen. And then you've got to create a language, a, a common language for the company for the organization for the team to be able to refer to that thing uh, whether it's a vision or, or just a, a picture of what the future might be in a way that allows them to speak the same language they've got to have uh, common values they've got to use um, uh, i would i would say common language but it's also a, a common way of describing that to each other in a way that makes it very very possible for them to understand what it is that they're doing
1: so, so how, um, how do you go about um, fostering or creating that, that that shared language and and, and ability to um, understand each other?
2: So at the team level, you can actually allow the team to create their own values. Those common values become um, something that they've created themselves and obviously something that they feel strongly connected to because they've been participants in that creative process. At the company level... You, are, you have a little bit more of a challenge because each product needs its own product vision and then you have to allow that product vision to be able to, to distill itself into values. Um, common language is, is things like how are we going to describe things, how are we going to talk about these things, uh, whether we're going to use um, uh, design thinking for example as a way of, of thinking about problem solving. Um, So it really depends on the size of the organization and the age of the organization. So if you're a a 100-year-old company like Disney and your initial vision is make people happy, then that's a strong vision. You don't really need to reinvent that. You might need to think about how the technology changes in order to advance that mission. But if you're a new company you've got a completely different challenge because you've got to get everybody on the same page and you've got to talk about these things in a way that everybody understands. And that requires just dialogue. It's good old-fashioned putting people in a room together, talking about this stuff, making sure that the words that we use are in fact the things that we understand them to mean and not something else. And as, as creative people yourselves, you know how complicated that is when you're working with a, a team and they mention something like as simple as wireframes. Everybody has a different idea of what wireframes might be. Everybody has a different idea of what a user interface might be. So just understanding the glossary of terms and how we communicate with each other is the first step. And then once that's done, you start talking about the same stuff. And when you start talking about the same stuff, you start manifesting the same stuff.
1: I really like this, um, the the thought or the thinking of of having the vision at um, a product level and not worrying so much about the the company level. But um, I can imagine that being easier when it's um, more of a startup environment where you've kind of got one thing to focus on, one product. But in in large organizations with multiple products, there's there's surely going to be that conflict where the the bigger part of the organization is striving for you to to, to be um, kind of... There's going to be a common culture across the company, or a common language across the entire company. How do you how do you deal with that kind of conflict of stresses within the organisation?
2: <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> so let me just say say by you know the, all of this stuff that we're talking about is not easy. Um, it's just like sending somebody to the moon. If you mm-hmm. can get the stuff right, though, it, it is your distinctive, distinctive advantage because so many companies aren't getting it right. Uh, how you do it is really going to be determined, like I said, by the culture of the organization, the age of the organization. Um, if uh, Let's talk about Tesla, for example, because that is, it's not a new company. It's probably been around for 10 something years now, um, certainly not a startup anymore. Their mission is to accelerate the transformation to renewable and sustainable energy. Now, that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. So they're obviously making electric cars, and that's what most people know them for. But they're also making solar panels. Uh, photovoltaic panels that they that they uh, connect to their batteries, another product that they make. And each one of those things that they make is a completely different product vision. And they allow the teams that are in charge of those different areas of different products to create a product vision that is both aligned with the greater mission of accelerating towards a future of sustainable energy, but also being true to the fact that that vision has to be something that they can manifest and that they can describe in a way that their customers can also visualize and say, Oh, I imagine a future where I have this battery in my house or this uh, electric car in my life or these photovoltaic tiles on my roof.
1: And I think Tesla's a good example because they, they, they really just you, you feel the, um, the kind of core, why they exist, the, the kind of core mission for, for Tesla. But then you can see how each product is really focused on being you know, the product that it should be.
2: Yeah, and I think it's okay. I think it's okay to have products that are very different by nature but are aligned to that bigger vision because they're still allowing for that mission to be authentic, right? They're still saying, okay, we're accelerating the future towards towards sustainable energy. They're not saying how to do that. Just like Disney doesn't say, you know, make people happy and this is how you do it. They know that technology is going to change. They know that times are going to change. I'm sure when the first Disneyland was built, those really old-fashioned rides would just not play anymore. You would get on those rides and go, this is the most boring thing I've ever done. This is not making me happy. But using new technologies or new advances in material sciences, they are able to deliver different experiences, uh, different channels of those experiences that make the modern consumer excited and happy to interact with that stuff.
0: I like that how this connects actually with, uh, with how I see with, when I tell developers that websites need to be accessible. So I don't tell them how to do it. I tell them that people with disabilities need to be able to use it. And I, sh- I show them how people with disabilities use other products. Uh, and then they figure it out. It's not about teaching them the, 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 the competence to do it uh, in an accessible way. It's about showing them why they should do it yeah that's and a really good which, example which is actually. interesting so so and so this also connects I know that you you speak a lot about uh, balancing between sticking to a vision and adapting to a changing world so would this be an example of that you ha- you have a vision but you can you can choose your, the path and you can change the path all the time but as long as you stick to the vision or the mission as you put it in the beginning
2: yeah like I said you know the mission is normally at the company level the products will come and go yeah. as things come mm-hmm. and go as Technology changes, or channels change, or consumers' uh, preferences or needs change. Um, you know, the, the, it's it's more important for you to imagine um, a future where your consumer is getting their needs met, and and that's ultimately the product's job. But the company's job has to be somewhat timeless. So let's go back to the the Tesla example. If you if you have a mission that's timeless, in other words, it doesn't matter what the technology is or the consumers. Uh, particular preferences or fashions might be um, if that mission is timeless and 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 it's valid today as well as tomorrow or a hundred years from now then your company can exist for a very long time but also have lots and lots of different kinds of products during that period and i think that's what we're aiming for as designers as well we want our work to be timeless not because we want to create things that people use forever but that it's relevant to our core fundamental needs as human beings and less about what's fashionable or what technology is new. Um, Just like your accessibility example, accessibility is going to change. You know, today it's going to be driven by a certain kind of technology and then tomorrow they're going to ship something else and you're going to be like, oh, well, I guess we're going to do it another way. Um, And that's Mm -hmm. just the way things are.
1: So um, apart from visualizing um, the uh, the the future and, and 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 creating a vision and so on for products um you, you must have done a lot of research um around product teams during writing the books so what what kind of what other problems are product teams encountering
2: you know unfortunately most of the problems that, that they're dealing with are human problems so they're the soft skills stuff uh, politics within large organizations tends to be a big one um structures of team that seems to be a, a common theme in fact I'm, my my current book that i'm writing my fourth book is going to be about how you structure high-performing teams. Um, And the reason why that's come up over and over again is because as we become smarter about doing work, we've realized that cross-functionality across different roles and skill sets and experiences and backgrounds allows for a diversity of thinking to produce a better product um, or a better outcome. And that diversity of experiences and roles isn't always something that's common to the company structure. So a company might have silos of, of, of skills or functions like they might have an IT group and a development group and a design group and a marketing group. Now we're finding that if you have those teams set up in cross-functional ways where you have a designer on the team, an engineer on the team, a marketer on the team, and if you're in a regulated industry, even a lawyer on the team, it allows for a much more uh, a higher velocity high velocity of conversation to happen And that means that decisions are being made faster and outcomes are being achieved faster. And so just like the original agile manifesto kind of urged us to be, we need to be pushing the people over process methodologies. So anything that prioritizes people versus the process or the technology needs to be given attention. And that's where teams are struggling now, because especially in big companies where they're used to being organized by silo or department or even location, um, they're now realizing that that no longer matters. So they're going to have to distribute those teams in ways that they can either be um, you know, cross-functional or even co-located and in, in many cases autonomous so that they can make decisions on their own without having to run decisions up the, the ladder, up the hierarchy every time something needs to be done.
1: I think that's that's a real big challenge for a lot of organizations, especially uh, ones which have been traditionally very process-led, um, that you know, everything's kind of specified down to the letter about what you need to do and when. And then suddenly when we're realizing you get the best out of groups when they've got a bit more, um, oh, as you say, autonomous um, decision-making and uh, decision-making closer to the group, that breaks some of these processes.
2: Yeah, and I think that's you know, getting back to what we were talking about around the philosophical value of, of creating a vision, is we need a philosophical value around process as well whenever you know again let's talk a little bit about the agile manifesto if If you guys remember the original agile manifesto, it was really simple, was super high level it didn't say anything about how to do work. it just described how people would be interacting at a philosophical level and then it's it allowed you to to use that framework, that philosophical framework to go ahead. And do what was relevant in your context or your business or your culture. What happened is a bunch of consultants got hold of it and turned it into dogma. And they started saying, no, you have to do this. You have to meet at this time with these people and you have to do these things and you have to have a backlog and you have to have these artifacts and these outputs. And when that happened, the dogma turned people into process oriented individuals as opposed to people oriented individuals. So it actually broke the original. Uh, value of the Agile Manifesto and that's sad because it's actually a really cool idea that that original manifesto is a really good concept but we've implemented it really badly and so we've we've sullied it and now nobody really trusts it anymore Uh, just like they don't trust lean as much anymore They, they you know we're living in this era where it's hey we spend all this money and time coaching our people on Agile and lean but it's not working why Well, it's because we prioritize the process stuff and the dogma over the conversations that people need to have and being human and interacting with each other in human ways.
0: Yeah, it seems like people are almost afraid of the philosophy. They're afraid to be human. They're afraid to have these open discussions because they want simple answers that will give them uh, simple tools to achieve their goals at work, and then they can go home.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Being human is hard,
1: so why do it? It is, yeah. yeah. And One I think it's also difficult to be honest in a working environment. And a lot of yeah. these situations require, um, require honesty, to, to you know, admit failure, admit that a certain way of working maybe didn't work out the first time, admit why you mm. think it wasn't working, and, and react to that and do something about it.
2: Yeah, well, I don't, I don't know if Bruno actually paid you to say that, James, but um, <laughs> apart from my <laughs> workshop, I'm actually going to be doing a talk on failure and how teams can embrace failure as a way to advance their knowledge and open those portals to new knowledge through failure um, and allow for vulnerabilities and allow for embarrassment and allow for shame to happen because that's when you advance your learning. That's when you advance your your uh, your understanding of yourself and of the group and of the work that you're doing. You don't really learn a lot from success. Success doesn't make us um, open up that new portal and say, hey, you know, this is something that's always going to work because we know that we're probably just really lucky. But failure gives us a really, really good insight in, in, into what needs to be done next time. You know, what can we avoid? How can we communicate differently? How can we use a different process? Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I don't know whether Bruno paid you, but that's going to be part of the <laughs> the UX Alex. Uh,
1: he hasn't paid me so far, but I'm going to send him an invoice now. <laughs> <laughs> no. But it's um, you're quite right. I mean, uh, we've, we've reflected before on how, um, after being in the business for as long as we we have, that you you realise and learn that I don't, actually most of the things you do are actually kind of failures, um, and that's not a bad thing. That's that's all part of of design and and research and learning and and trying to produce something a little bit better next time. Um, yeah, and, that, and, 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 and that's
2: fine. And, you know, I'm a biologist, and one of the things I always ask myself is you know, what does biology do in these situations? And, and one thing you realize is biology is like the ultimate user testing system, right? It just keeps trying, keeps evolving new ideas. And a lot of those ideas don't work, right? Tons of them don't work. There's a lot of terminal points on the evolutionary tree. Um, and that's okay. You know, it's, it's part of the process. It's the, it's the system of getting to a better product for that particular moment in time, for the context, for the the era that you're in, given all of the different um, technologies or materials or uh, understandings or even you know, politics and, and economics um, for that particular time. So I think it's okay for some things to survive and it's okay for some things not to survive, not because I'm some kind of hard ass and empathetic person, person, but rather I see that as a way for us to learn, for us to get... Mm-hmm. Smarter and more knowledgeable about what we're trying to do for the the benefit of the Earth. You know, if we're, you know, when I was a kid, probably in my teens, there was a hole in the ozone layer because we were throwing CFCs into the air, and the world responded and said, "That's a bad thing. We don't want to die because radiation is going to come through this huge hole in the in the in the ozone layer. Let's do something about it." And they banned CFCs. Well, now we're facing other crises, right? We're facing crises like global warming and and certain political things. And as an as, as a international society, we're saying, well, let's not let that happen. You know, that's why Tesla is successful now where electric cars weren't successful 100 years ago, because we're kind of screwing up the environment. But we also realize that and we're learning from that mistake and we're saying, OK, let's do something better. Let's fix that. Let's get away from fossil fuels. It might take us a long time to actually do that, but we're doing it at least.
1: I think that's also t- ties in lovely with, with the biology example that, you know, um, even even the, the we react in biology and, and create and adapt, the, the thing that happens is that you may have worked out what works now, but something else adapts, something else changes. So what has worked doesn't necessarily work forever.
2: Exactly. And I think that's why it's so fun to be in design and in product, because your job is always changing. You know, I... I don't know how old you guys are, but when I started out, it was like, "Hey, you know, you needed to know HTML to get a job, and then you needed to know CSS, and then you needed to know JavaScript, and then you actually needed to know how to do design and all of these different tools." And it was a, it was a requirement of the job. And now you can be a UX person and never actually write a single line of code. So everything changes, and it's it's mm. the tools change, the technologies change, the environments change. Um, and certainly the problems that we solve um, have different solutions and the problems might not be different I think human problems tend to be fundamental but the way that we solve those problems is very different, like we're not going to use necessarily a horse to get from A to B, we're going to use an electric car um, it's still the same problem but we're going to use a completely different set of solutions to solve that and that's what makes design so cool is that you don't know what your job's going to be next week, you don't know what it's going to be next year and that keeps you on your toes and that's kind of fascinating
0: yeah it truly is there is actually one question I wanted to briefly touch upon because I'm so curious about it because now we're talking about how it's important to create these psychologically safe uh, environments it's, it's important for people to be talking to each other and, but more and more people also want to work remotely and people are always looking for well, how, how does that work because the way I see it when the most successful teams I've worked with is when everybody's been sitting together how do you make those teams successful when they're sitting far away from each other
2: Oh, man! It's so hard. Um, look, right now we're at that transition stage when companies are realizing they can be remote, so um, they're they're solving that problem poorly. Um, but I think right now we're we're at that transition where we see you need to do a combination of things. You need to do the the typical remote type working where you're using um, all the remote conferencing tools, using Slack, using email to communicate with each other. And at the same time, you're using the co-located opportunities to meet. Uh, you're doing maybe monthly or quarterly meetings, uh, annual meetings, where you bring the whole company together. Certainly, if you're a company that started that way, um, companies like uh, uh, Automatic and, um, and Envision and companies like that that have always been remote, they tend to do better because that's the original culture and they've, they've started there companies that are transitioning from having a big office or a head office or multiple offices and now they're moving towards um, a remote type uh, setup or distributed setup, that transition is much harder um, and, and not all of them are going to be successful doing that. So I think right now the solution is you've got to do both. You've got to have a set of remote working tools and you've also got to bring people together on a regular basis that allows them to develop that in-person uh, chemistry between each other, but it's it, it may not be the right long-term solution, and I honestly don't know what it's going to be like in ten years' time. <laughs> That's a good point, <laughs> and I think also
1: it's um, we, we see the well, I've seen the difference when you're working in a um, as a distributed team, but then also as, as a distributed team um, cross-culturally. Um, so, so several countries, um, maybe even where some of them are, are not. I mean, of course, we live and work in Sweden. So, you know, we're, we're often mixing between a Swedish um, part of the team and um, a part of the team that's in another country doing some development doing some design. Um, and that adds an extra layer of complexity to, to the, the the shared language, shared values and, mm. and success factors that we've discussed.
2: Yeah, yeah it's really hard. And I, as somebody who's run global companies, I know that that's not something that you can get over particularly easy. You actually have to spend a lot of time with each other getting to know those cultures. Um, and you can't just be a tourist. You can't just like, kind of fly in for a couple of days and meet in a room and then leave. You've got to get to know the culture, not just the human beings mm-hmm. that you're working with. And that means spending time there. And that can be expensive. You know That can, can result in costs that you thought you wouldn't have to spend because you didn't have an office. You're like, oh, well, we're not going to spend thousands of dollars on an office But you actually end up spending money on travel and and accommodating those people as they get to know each other. Um, And it's worth it because if you've got a small group of well-connected, cross-functional people that are really understanding of each other and relate to each other really well, you've got success. But if you've got um, a disconnected team that's not communicating very well, then you've got problems and that's going to ultimately catch you, know, you, might be sold, you might be saving a lot of money not having an office, but it's going to catch up to you eventually, and you're going to, you're going to have to pay the price for that.
0: Really, really good points. Unfortunately, we're going to have to round off now, but uh, this has been a great chat. I've had so many insights. Maybe most important, don't beat the crap out of other people's ideas. Uh,
2: <laughs> <laughs> you, well, hang on. You can be hard on ideas. You just can't be hard on people. <laughs>
0: I'm really looking forward to seeing you in Lisbon in May as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I yeah. loved last year. It was a fantastic conference. So I can't wait for yeah. this year. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Richard. Cheers, guys. Bye.
1: We finished off talking there about the, um, the, the whole thing with remote working or distributed teams. Um, and this is something, it's something that's always fascinated me, really, since, since it first became even a, a possibility I was actually going to say a remote possibility um, of, of being able to to work <laughs> somewhere else because you know in, in my in my heart in my head this should really really work it should be you know being someone that's been online since the eighties and I've I've got no problem with with chatting to people digitally and and I'm I'm not really mm. worried about meeting them physically um, I'm comfortable with that so I kind of have that that desire that it, it will work but like you said in the interview. Um, the best teams you've worked with are the ones where you've sat together.
0: I know that's so true, but I think it. I mean, it, it's it's not only about the meeting itself. I think it, I guess it's just about those little chit chats that you have for two or three minutes across the day as well, that enables you to feel so much trust with these people that you relax in a way that you don't if you aren't connected to the people in a, fa- in a face-to-face fashion.
1: But but what you, what we're saying there then is mm-hmm. it's not the mm-hmm. it's not the the collocation that's key there. Um, it's it's the time to be able to to um, build a relationship, whether it's in the same space or remotely, um, which in its own turn allows you to create the the shared um, the values or shared um, language and understanding. Mm.
0: Um, like I mean, in Sweden we have our fika, hmm. our like coffee uh, <laughs> moments for coffee in the afternoons, and I think. I mean there are so many I've heard of teams that actually have a large display on the wall where one team in one country is sitting on the display on the wall uh, so you're actually able to just lift your head and talk to a person across the world mm. and I'd like to see more experiments with those types of ways of working together but in that sense you could also have a coffee together and just sit around a sofa but just have one screen in the middle and the other sofa is behind that screen or on the screen. Yeah,
1: or all those little kind of like um, avatar robots mm-hmm. on wheels with iPads in their faces and kind of like, yeah.
0: Yeah, that you see and read about that are being more, more and more used even yeah. in schools, which is really excellent. So I think we need to just go move beyond, work with the tools we have, but f- like understand what weaknesses there are, like body language and having eye contact and work on how we can like tear down
1: those barriers as well. So what we're saying there actually is um, we don't necessarily need to sit together. What we need is more time for being human.
0: Yes, you're probably right. Uh, and I think that, uh, I mean, you and I, like you said, we've, d- we've done this for so, so many years since we were kids. Uh, but for a lot of people today, it, it probably is uh, more of a challenge to actually find that comfortable comfort zone in speaking to someone across a digital device. And Probably. also, everyone's
1: everyone's different as well. I mean, mm. even even people like me and you have been online for for decades. Mm. I mean, there's, we're still different. I mean, I I'm I'm actually much more comfortable with video chats like like me and you are actually doing now to record this mm. this outro mm. um, compared to telephone calls.
0: Yeah, same here. Um, you know, I I have telephone phobia. <laughs>
1: Oh, I've I, yeah, yeah never used to maybe yeah. back. It, oh, it varies in in kind of situation, but yeah, you you can feel really uncomfortable in situations which are very similar, mm. um, and that can very much prohibit your ability to to relax, to get to know someone, to to do the mm. human aspect of, of of team building and um, mm. and and creating shared values.
0: So applying the learnings uh, uh, from Richard really is that we need to f- the problem needs to be defined uh, in a way that we have a vision that is timeless. How do we work together finding a way to work together and, and st- stop thinking about the technology as the in a necessary enabler but something has to be the enabler and we need to just need to solve that I think maybe the children of today who are so used to working together across digital perhaps won't find this as much as a barrier so Richard has a point there as well we don't know what will happen in 10 years
1: but the people themselves might not but the organizations might True. Richard mentioned this mm-hmm. on multiple points that mm-hmm. um, uh, older companies, established um, companies, um, will have a harder time transitioning. Um, and, and newer companies or startups um, will have an easier time because the, this this aspect of um, this this cultural aspect will mm. be baked into the, the the essence of the organization. Mm. So so if there is a generational thing and that younger people will you know do have it a lot mm. easier, they'll have it a lot easier in those newer companies than than the the the, the, the polarized crash that would be a young mm. person coming into a hundred year old company.
0: Yeah. And I also do have to mention that uh, there are so many people and, and uh, teams have struggling with the technology. I mean, if you spend 10 to 15 minutes at the beginning of a meeting on getting the technology to work for you for a video meeting, then you're not going to be incentivized to keep doing that. So the more problems we have currently, the less inclined people will be, will be to work
1: this way in the future. Uh, Looking so at had, you, Skype for Business. Yes, Exactly. <laughs> I think you can summarize a lot of what Richard said by thinking that you've you've got to have responsibility at team level uh, for for many aspects of of the work we do and this has mm. b- this has come up in in various um you know articles and research that you know, distributed responsibility and you know, by putting it down in the team. The team knows best. I mean, the whole agile thing is based on the The team yeah. knows what resources it needs. It knows what's going to kind of like, you know, what needs to be planned, what, what things to work on now. And yeah, all this stuff lies, the knowledge lies at the team level. And the same thing goes for, for the product strategy or rather product vision, as mm-hmm. Richard was saying. Um, and it doesn't matter if the top of the organization. They can be inspiring and, and, and visionary, but your team needs to be human and treat yeah. each other like human beings. I agree.
0: So, thank you for joining us today. Links and notes from this episode can be found on uxpodcast.com. And please add us to your podcasting client of choice if you aren't already a subscriber.
1: And it's that time of year again for our um, listener survey. Oh, yeah. So, um, please take a few moments. Um, we've updated the survey for 2018, and we've taken away the NPS score, which all of, the, all of you that listen to Um, episode 179 with Gerard we'll know why Um, so visit uxpodcast.com slash survey remember to keep moving see you on the other side knock who's there
0: Cambridge Analytica
1: Cambridge Analytica who
0: nice try but I'm the one tracking you oh